MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, July 6, 2020. Today, more SCOTUS decisions due out Monday morning. How Trump could lose the election and still stay in power. I'll be speaking with a 30-plus year veteran of the NSA. West Point cadets write a proposal to make the academy anti-racist. Trump's dictatorial Fourth of July speech from Mount Rushmore. Human remains found during a search for missing Fort Hood soldier Vanessa Gillen. The NFL will play the Black National Anthem at Week 1 games. Trump wants to remove another U.S. attorney in a key office investigating his inaugural. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs confirms bayonets were issued for the D.C. protests. I'm your host, A.G., and joining me today is Jordan Coburn. Hello. I got almost through it without tripping up on the very last word there with DC. That was a lot of news, though. <laughs> it's a lot of news. I was just thinking you should put out a podcast that's like 10 seconds long every day, and it's just literally reading of the headlines like that, and that's it. So I could just <laughs> listen to it and be like, cool. It'll be like the equivalent of seeing an article and saying you read it in quotes, but you actually just saw it. And then you make a diorama about the headline. Um, yeah. 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 And uh, it, it is a lot of news. We're going to try to get to it all. Actually, we will get to it all. I've scripted it. But um, <laughs> we're committing to it. <laughs> but uh, first of all, I want to thank our patrons. Holy shnikes. We have so many patrons that have uh, sponsored people who can't afford to have a, a like a, a Patreon premium account. So we have plenty of room if anybody wants to have uh, a premium membership where you get ad-free early episodes and access to the closed social media groups and the newsletter and my research notes and all, you know, all the stuff that comes with being a patron. Uh, If you want that, there's room to sign up right now. You just go to dailybeanspod.com, scroll down and you'll see the little, um, you know, patrons sponsoring patrons uh, section there. And if you want to be sponsored, we have so many um, because of our generous patrons that have bought one year memberships um, for for people who can't afford it right now because of COVID. So head to dailybeanspod.com, sign up if you if you want. And you can also in that same area sponsor a patron. Um, I'll be talking today uh, later on in the show with uh, the, uh, you know, anonymous um, intelligence community uh, veteran of Lincoln's Bible, which talks about um, she talks about him or her extensively. And uh, we all agreed over the weekend for this person to come on this show and say who they are and talk about what's going on, particularly with the Russia bounty situation. So we look forward to that. I'll also be speaking to the author of the book Rigged, David Scheimer. He's going to join us later in the show. And, uh, of course, we're going to have uh, headlines, news from under the radar in the A Block with Jordan. Hello. Um, and also your good news stories from the weekend that you send in to us. You can send those in by hitting up our pinned tweet at Daily Beans Pod or going to our website and submitting there. And uh, the new Quarantine Confessions came out on Saturday. It comes out Friday for patrons. You can check that out. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts and search for Quarantine Confessions and look for our spyglass lady. She's there with wearing a mask. And uh, that's the Quarantine Confessions <laughs> show. And so um, that's so it's so much fun. And we, we get such good submissions. You can submit uh, in the same place you submit your good news stories. So we do have a lot of uh, headlines to get to. So let's hit the hot notes. 
hot notes. All right, so Jordan, you cool if I go first? Yeah, totally. All right, sweet. First up is an article by Timothy Wirth and Tom Rogers that was published in Newsweek this weekend, and it outlines how Trump could lose the election, the popular vote and and the electoral vote, and still stay in power. And we've talked about this many times on Mueller, she wrote, in the Daily Beans, expecting Barr to whip up some sort of Office of Legal Counsel memo giving Trump broad emergency powers that would have to be duked out in court. And uh, these two... Um, uh, Worth and Rogers have laid this out in detail in Newsweek over the weekend. And so basically there's two paths to hanging on to power to avoid criminal prosecution for Trump. One of the broader paths, of course, is to cheat, either by welcoming foreign interference, voter suppression, gutting vote-by-mail provisions, spreading COVID to make us afraid to vote, hacking machines that don't have hand-marked paper ballots, uh, disinformation, etc. But the second pathway is darker and, frankly, a little more frightening. He's already calling the 2020 election rigged, which lays the groundwork for the following scenario. So let's say Biden wins the popular vote and carries the key swing states of Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania by decent but not overwhelming margins. Then Trump immediately declares that the voting was rigged and that there was mail-in ballot fraud and that the Chinese were behind a plan to provide fraudulent mail-in ballots and other, quote, election hacking throughout the four key swing states that gave Biden the victory. Having railed against the Chinese throughout the campaign, calling Biden soft on China, Trump delivers a narrative claiming that the Chinese have interfered in the U.S. election. Trump indicates that this is a major national security issue and invokes emergency powers, directing the Justice Department to investigate the alleged activity in the swing states. And the legal justification for the presidential powers he invokes has already been developed and issued by Barr. The investigation is intended to tick down the clock toward December 14th. That's the deadline when each state's electoral college electors must be appointed. Uh, this is the very issue that the Supreme Court harped, uh, harped on in Bush v. Gore in a ruling that the election process had to be brought to a close, thus forbidding the further counting of Florida ballots. Uh, all four swing states would have Republican control. Uh, all four of these swing states have Republican control in both of their upper and lower houses of their state legislatures. And those state legislatures would refuse to allow any electoral college slate to be certified until the national security investigation, quote unquote, is complete. At that point, the Democrats will have begun a legal action to certify the results in those four states and the appointment of the Biden slate of electors, arguing that Trump has manufactured a national security emergency in order to create the ensuing chaos. The issue goes up to the Supreme Court, which, unlike the 2000 election, does not decide the election in favor of the Republicans. However, it indicates again that December 14th, the Electoral College deadline must be met and that the president's national security powers legally authorize him to investigate potential foreign country intrusion into the national election. And if no electoral college slate can be certified by any state by December 14th, the electoral college must meet anyway and cast its votes. So then they meet, and without electors from those four states, neither Biden nor Trump has sufficient votes for the majority. And then the election is thrown into the House of Representatives, pursuant to the Constitution. Under the relevant constitutional process, the vote in the House is by state delegation, where each delegation casts one vote, which is determined by the majority of the representatives in that state. Currently, there are 26 states that have a majority Republican House delegation and 23 that have a majority Democratic delegation. There is one state, Pennsylvania, that is evenly split. Even if the Democrats were to pick up seats in Pennsylvania and hold all their 2018 House gains, the Republicans would have a 26 to 24 delegation majority. And that vote would enable Trump to retain the presidency. The only way to stop this scenario is to out the scenario. So that's why I'm telling you about it right now and share it with everyone you know. Share this episode with everyone you know and get it out into the lexicon so we can see it coming. 
Yeah, I was gonna say good luck. Good luck sharing that over coffee. That's gonna have to be a link. <laughs> yeah, you don't can't you can't put it on a bumper sticker mm-hmm. like we always say. No, no, no. Jordan, <laughs> Jordan, what do you have for us? Uh, so the story is I'm giving a trigger warning because it deals with the murder of Vanessa Gulen. So if you want to skip forward right now, this is a good time to do that. So. Uh, in Fort Hood, Vanessa Gulen, it has been discovered that she was bludgeoned to death with a hammer where she worked um, in the armory room. This is according to her family's attorney. They came out and said that on Thursday. There have been remains that were found, um, and it's Vanessa Gulen. And the main suspect, his name is Aaron David Robinson, and it is widely believed that Gulen was going to file a harassment claim against Robinson uh, the day after she was killed and they think that that's what I don't don't even want to say caused him to be enraged because that's absurd and I don't even want to give any sort of legitimacy to there being any real cause and effect there other than him being a murderous sexually violent psychopath Uh, he wound up dying by suicide on Wednesday after a confrontation with police. And this is just a horrifying story we reported on when the the news first came out a couple weeks ago. And it's just been so sad to see how it's all transpired and seemingly how a system that is supposed to support you did not have your back at all. And AG, I know I don't want to put you too much on the spot or anything, but I know that you have a really direct connection to this, and I wanted to just offer my condolences to how triggering this all probably is for you, and um, I know you have a very personal connection to that dynamic in the military, so I just wanted to give you the floor if you wanted to say any remarks. Yeah, I mean, it is terrifying um, to try to report sexual harassment, rape, sexual assault um, in the military. Um, because you're right, there's just no support there. Uh, there's not a support system. And, of course, as long as the decision to prosecute sexual harassment or rape or assault lies in the hands of the of the commander of your installation or, or base, uh, they want to sweep those things under the rug because they don't want to be the, you know, the, the command that has a bunch of rapes and harassment that happens. And so it, it behooves them to, to, to ignore it or sweep it under the rug. And when... When I went to report um, my rape, uh, I told them, I, you know, I think I was raped. And then they, they proceeded to ask me the litany of questions that normally get asked. What were you wearing? Were you drinking? Were you flirting? Et cetera. Um, and then they started telling me everything that would happen to me if I filed a false report for rape, uh, which included, but wasn't limited to, uh, a, a, a dishonorable discharge, which means you would lose your signing bonus. You would lose your job. You would lose your um, uh, GI Bill benefits. You would lose any VA health benefits that you had been promised. Um, they also threatened to uh, charge me with adultery because my rapist was married. I wasn't, but my rapist was. And so, you know, they were like, do you just want to chalk this up to a bad decision? Now, that that sort of pushback for reporting comes from one side, but then you have this kind of scenario where women, and and Jordan, I know you can attest to this too, because as women uh, or people who identify as women, we are constantly frightened to say no to men. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean to be binary about this. This happens mm-hmm. to men. This happens to non-binary people. 
but it's 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 terrifying to say no because this is what these kinds of things are what can result. If you check out hashtag I am Vanessa Gillen and hashtag Me Too Military, you'll see so many stories uh, of people who have gone through this kind of thing or feared this kind of retaliation, whether it be from the actual military itself or from your perpetrator, both men and women and non-binary people. And it's, it's, it's terrifying. And so uh, I, I hope that the, the murder of Vanessa Gillen does for military sexual harassment, rape, and assault what um, the murder of George Floyd did for the Black Lives Matter movement in that it draws attention and forces change uh, because it, it's way past overdue. My, my, my incident happened in 1995, and when I tweeted out about it, I got uh, responses, dozens and dozens of responses from people who it happened to in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, it's just, it's nonstop. And so uh, I appreciate you letting me talk about that for a moment. And I really hope we need justice for Vanessa Gillen. And I really hope that this brings more light to this issue. Um, and not just for me, but for everyone. Me too. Thank you for sharing. I'm going to kick it back to you now for your story. Yeah, well, um, let's see here. Uh, this was deja vu all over again. The Justice Department is weighing whether or not to replace the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of New York, Richard Donahue, with a senior department official who is close to Bill Barr named Seth Ducharme. Ducharme is currently the paydag. That's the principal assistant deputy attorney general at the Department of Justice. And Barr wants th- these two to swap jobs wants Donahue to become the paydag and wants the paydag to take over the Eastern District of New York. Um, this Brooklyn Post, this U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, wields significant influence by virtue of its jurisdiction and has recently investigated friends of Trump, including Tom Barrick. That's your forever fantasy mm, indictment league quarterback. freaking guy! <laughs> Uh, he chaired the inaugural committee for Trump. And in February, Barr gave Donahue supervision of all agency investigations related to Ukraine. So it's hard to tell who's a black hat and who's a white hat in this situation, but he wants to, these two to swap jobs. Um, so we'll keep an eye on this one for you. I have no idea if this has any sort of precedent. And like, is it common for someone to go from a higher position to what seems like a lower position? Or am I interpreting those positions correctly? Uh, I don't know if I, I feel like the paydag is a higher position than than u.s attorney but i could be completely wrong i think they're just so different got it okay i was assuming that one was like obviously above the other thank you for informing yeah me that is i the case. i i think the paydag is up in the chain of command there above u.s attorneys as far as reporting structure and governance go but i mean whether you are, you're a u.s attorney or the paydag you you have a significant job totally. right yeah. and it's just it's just like with the ouster of the southern district of new york Berman. Oh, yeah no if they're moving their chess pieces around it's not good <laughs> yeah like mm, i don't like any of it so but you know maybe they're both assholes and i, I don't know <laughs> you know I, I haven't talked to anybody yet who, who has known or worked with either of these fellows so mm-hmm. it's it's hard for me to draw any kind of beans conclusions but mm-hmm. it's hap- it's it looks like it's it's happening mm-hmm Great. Well, we'll have to check back in later on how that's ruined everything. Um, <laughs> I have a story coming out of the NFL. So the NFL has announced that during their first week of games, they're going to 
play the Black National Anthem, the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, before they play the Star Spangled Banner. And this is either going to be done live or just played uh, through the through the PA. And this is something that's coming out at a time where NFL uh, really fucked up in the past and has not righted their wrongs in a way that seems to be meaningful to any books that I'm hearing talking about it that are a part of the NFL organization and are, uh, you know, critically looking at their behavior. So this is kind of just being seen as a performative activism sort of thing if they're not putting their money where their mouth is, largely. Uh, and mm-hmm. and it's ringing, it's ringing a bit hollow from, from some a lot of people that I'm seeing talk about it right now. Uh, but that is right it seems like a band-aid yes exactly well you hear very similar criticism about like putting black lives matter you know on on streets and stuff it's like i don't care about the fucking street change shit you know like i need actual Mm -hmm. policy change i don't really care if you put that on a street i know that's not everyone's opinion but that is one that i hear a lot in that it's very yeah the critical side of these actions but that's right. going to be happening. Yeah, like the Black Lives Matter streets or uh, the changing of the bases from Confederate uh, leaders, um, playing the Black National Anthem Week 1 games. I have a story here that uh, many are calling performative as well, but this is from um, West Point. Um, 40, a 40-page 40 policy proposal from the highest-ranking West Point cadets from the classes of 2018 and 2019 uh, has come out to make the academy anti-racist. Um, this is from Charlotte Clymer on Twitter. Quote, this includes, but isn't limited to, removing everything from the academy that venerates the Confederacy, severing ties with the United Daughters of the Confederacy, investing in spaces that nurture and protect black cadets' identities, and demanding more black faculty and staff. The now lieutenants who wrote this policy proposal at the top of their class, these are the kind of young officers that the Army expects to become generals someday, Um, So that's um, they put forward this policy Mm -hmm. proposal. Mm -hmm. And then also um, and here's this is frightening this weekend. You know, we were talking about bayonets being issued to these unmarked police officers during the D.C. protests. And this weekend, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff confirmed that they did issue bayonets. Those are close quarters, hand to hand combat knives from the Confederate fucking war jesus um civil war excuse me confederate war and i think the revolutionary war like really old school weapons yeah um and they they were issued bayonets for the dc protests um so there's that um a couple other quick headlines uh there's a personality on Twitter called Rogue White House Senior Advisor. He's sent out tweets forever. He's got a couple hundred thousand followers. And he's been sending out tweets leading up to the reveling, like revealing his true identity. He was going to do it on the 4th of July at noon. When the hour came, he changed his name to James Maxwell Trump and posted a photoshopped birth certificate claiming he was the bastard son of Ghislaine and Donald. Uh, it was quickly debunked. Uh, the real birth certificate was shown with the correct number, and uh, it wasn't maxwell jason james maxwell trump but the following day uh the owner of the account claimed he was hacked likely after finding out no one was Ah. buying his bullshit (laughs) so now he's trying to get all of his followers back to say i'm just kidding i was hacked it wasn't me so he tried i think it sounds to me like and wow he tried this stunt to say he was the the son of Ghislaine and donald 
um, faked a birth certificate and then nobody bought it. And then he said, oh, I was hacked. That's what it seems like to me. Um, and this so, is such Twitter bullshit drama that is so specific to that I platform. Know. It's enraging. I know. These folks get like, they do get a following and <laughs> they start shaping the narrative. You know what our Twitter feeds look like. They're very much tailored to... The things that we read and enjoy reading and sort of are on the same page about largely. So it's like if you're throwing in bullshit like that, get out of here Mm -hmm. with your weird account shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Strange. And speaking of weird account drama shit on uh, Twitter, uh, everyone just ignore Kanye. Um, Those are the headlines. Those are the headlines. Uh, We'll be right. That's all I'm going to say about that. We'll be right back after this quick break with an interview uh, with a 30 year plus NSA inspector general veteran better known to us as a relative of Lincoln's Bible on Twitter. You won't want to miss it. So stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. This episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by Sunsoil CBD. CBD is really, really popular right now. Uh, It's popping up everywhere in all kinds of stuff from coffee and supplements to pet treats even. Uh, But, you know, how can you tell what's good and what's not? How do you know how to dose? Uh, Even more importantly, who can you trust? And those were some of the questions I had. And I turned to Sunsoil CBD and they gave me all the answers. Uh, Transparency and quality control set them apart from the rest uh, by far, head and shoulders. With Sunsoil, you know what's in every bottle exactly because they only use ingredients ingredients you can understand and trust. And most of their products are comprised of just two ingredients, organic hemp and organic coconut oil. And they farm all their own hemp in the Green Mountain Farms of Vermont and they extract the CBD themselves and they test for quality and purity at every step of the way. Totally transparent. They never use pesticides or herbicides GMOs. Because Sunsoil does everything in-house and they keep their products simple, they can offer the highest quality CBD at unbeatable prices, too. And in fact, Sunsoil products are usually half the price of other ingestible CBD brands. Every Sunsoil product is USDA organic certified, including their oil drops, soft gels, capsules, and coconut oil. Um, I like to put a few of the oil drops in my morning coffee, or sometimes I take a soft gel at night before getting some great sleep. And one of the greatest things about Sunsoil is that as the largest CBD manufacturer to partner with 1% for the planet, they'll be donating 1% of Sunsoil's annual sales to help environmental nonprofits that do good for people, plants, and the planet. Sunsoil removes all the guesswork by making pure and simple CBD products at unbeatable prices. You can get 30% off your first order by going to sunsoil.com slash dailybeans. That's sunsoil, S-U-N-S-O-I-L dot com slash dailybeans for 30% off your first order. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, joining me today, as you know, we've recently had Lincoln's Bible uh, who, uh, from Twitter on, on our show, and uh, she speaks frequently of one of her family members who was in the intelligence community, and we are going to speak with that family member today um, and find out who he is and, and some of the things that he was involved in. So everybody, uh, please welcome Unc to uh, the Daily Beans. Unc, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you very much. I hope your fourth was great and safe and uh, six foot apart from everybody else. <laughs> I, I was at home alone uh, just trying to keep the dog calm uh, amidst all the fireworks, but we had a good time. <laughs> great. So I'm really excited. Here, here in Washington, we had, a, we had a heck of a blowout with everybody down in the mall. So I'm, I hope that everyone there is safe and, and uh, not infected, but who knows. Yeah. Anyway, I was seeing some of the video. It didn't look like the crowds were were too big, so hopefully it, bad. It, it won't be bad. But um, you know, we'll see. We'll know in a few weeks. But at first, here, can you tell us who you are? And and you're a thirty plus year veteran. Uh, can you tell us what agency you were with? I worked for the National Security Agency, 
which is uh, located between DC, Washington DC and Baltimore. And uh, I was there for a long time, as you said, uh, and I loved every day of it, to tell you the truth. I worked uh, several different jobs while I was there over the years, uh, including oh, tra uh, executive training and development, managing all that, and then uh, working with the Inspector General as an Assistant Inspector General, traveling around looking at intelligence programs to be sure they're uh, you know, managed and functioning in accordance with strictures and the Constitution and policies and things of that nature. A very interesting work. Kind of just before I retired, I worked on a small team on a director staff trying to address some long-standing difficult problems in the agency's operations. And then I retired in 2008 and I was out for a year or so and they called me up and asked me to come back, which I did. And then I retired again and they called me up and asked me to come back, which I did. <laughs> Working, uh, I told them, I'll come back if you can give me my parking space. So they said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and that's crazy. But, uh, you know, it's just hard to stop working there because it's such a fascinating place. So. Yeah, and especially when you have all those years of amassed experience, it has to be incredibly valuable to the organization. Well, uh, you know, one of the characteristics of the agency is that its workforce is aging. So uh, there's lots and lots of experience there, and hoping we're hoping to get more and more kind of newcomers in there with, with uh, you know, the cyber skills that we need. So mm, anyway, yeah. that, that's, that's what we were up against when I left. I stay yeah. in touch a little bit, you know, through lunches and breakfasts and things like that where we, you know, kind of share old stories and stuff like that. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I I only worked for an agency for 12 years and, and uh, same, you know, those, those strings are hard to cut. So uh, I'm glad you're here speaking with us. And I want to give a little primer to our listeners about, about, you know, I mean, there are 17 intelligence agencies. Sitting atop the intelligence agencies is the Director of National Intelligence. That came, position came after, uh, that was post 9-11 to help improve the communications between the intelligence agencies. And I remember Robert Mueller testifying and when asked, what do we do to help, you know, bolster our election security come 2020 or 2018, he said, the most important thing that you can do is make sure that you have an experienced and knowledgeable director of national intelligence. And then we ended up with Rick Grinnell. So <laughs> I think they kind of went in the opposite direction. there. <laughs> um, and I would imagine that a lot of the uh, inspector general, because, you know, Trump is just going through and weeding out inspectors general like like oh, it's terrible. It's and really, uh, really terrible. And so there, you know, there's a lot less oversight there. But I'm, I would imagine the inspector general at the uh, NSA would work a lot on on understanding issues about communications among the intelligence agencies. And I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about what the NSA mission is different from the CIA, FBI, what SIGINT is and HUMINT and all these terms that are being bandied about these days. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're, each agency, of course, has its own mission. Ours is signals intelligence, in, uh, and, and of course we are a combat support agency, part of the DOD, as well as part of the in, in, uh, intelligence community. So we have kind of a dual focus. Part of that uh, combat support thing, of course, is force uh, protection. So I, I'm very interested in what's going on right now in terms of this Russian intelligence unit paying people to shoot Americans in Afghanistan. Uh, a very, very scary thing. But 
all these agencies, uh, the CIA's primary agent, uh, mission is human intelligence, uh, ga gathering uh, intelligence uh, as they can at cocktail parties. And you, I'm sure you've read all that. <laughs> Just so you know, no one in NSA is riding around in a fast car with a pistol on their hip trying to trying to collect intelligence. <laughs> That's not what we do. <laughs> it's a very, very technical organization uh, hiring uh, mathematicians like crazy and, and trying to keep up with the speed of the, the developments on the, on the Internet as, as best we can as, too. So it, it's a challenging, challenging time for, for the agency. Some other agencies, there's 17 of them, as you mentioned, in the intelligence community. They uh, have uh, nuclear intelligence. They have different uh, different spins on all the uh, work that they're supposed to be doing, and they're not supposed to be operating outside of their swim lanes. The people who kind of pull it all together are in the, as you mentioned, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. I think they're in a group called the Mission Integration Directorate, which is also responsible for preparing the President's Daily Brief. Mm. Mm. Speaking of that, President's Daily Brief, sort of at the crux of what's going on with this Russian bounty story, sure as Trump is saying that he never received the intelligence, um, he hasn't said it's not real, but then he, of course, uh, I think Robert O'Brien had come out and said, uh, you know, that intelligence uh, wasn't uh, corroborated. It didn't have any validity to it. And so the CIA briefer, um, he blames the briefer, the person responsible for briefing the president's daily brief uh, to Trump, uh, saying that that that, that person, it's, uh, I think it's a woman, made that specific call. And so I think they're trying to throw her under the bus here. That's the director of the CIA. She's, you know, years and years and years of experience as a agent and as a manager and as a highly respected person in the CIA. So uh, I find that very offensive, to tell you the truth. And uh, to say that uh, it wasn't briefed is not really credible. Because, A.G., hey, you know, when we put something in, in the president's daily brief, we considered it briefed. It was in the White House. It was, you know, in the hands of the chief of staff of the president and, and it was distributed to the to the vice president, the president, the, the joint chiefs of staff. I mean, everybody who had a you know an order to pull and in the national security arrangement saw that and, and dealt with that briefing. So, of course, the number one customer for the briefing is the president. Mm -hmm. And so, for him to say I didn't read it, I'm not surprised that. But for, I think he has to have somebody tell him what's in it because he doesn't read and he has to have somebody who can figure out what's this guy's mood today so I can be sure I'm not going to get thrown out of the office on my ass here. Right and generally his mood is he, he doesn't want to hear anything about Russia that's generally his mood I mean uh, it's just an environment that's unbelievable to anybody who's been in the intelligence community that he's set up there in the White House it's just it's just incredible. Yeah, and, and and people need to be worried about it. People need to care about it. People need to say, what is going on here with this guy, you know, uh, this president aligning himself so tightly with Putin? Mm -hmm. For somebody from the intelligence community like me, that that's just that's that's our worst nightmare come true. Yeah, former head of the KGB, he's he's. I imagine takes up a lot of time uh, of intelligence analysts, you know, 
Um, and this this is just out from Politico a couple of days ago. The dispute over the intelligence that they're talking about the Russian bounties has thrust Trump's current briefer, senior career intelligence officer Beth Sanner, into an uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortably pol- uh, public position. And on Wednesday, as I said, Robert O'Brien referred obliquely to Sanner as he claimed she was the person who decided not to mention the bounty intelligence uh, to Trump. And you and I had a had a quick conversation. Uh, before, you know, before we spoke today, we spoke a couple days ago about what's called the chop chain for the presidential daily brief. And, and you know, I had mentioned in at all levels of government, this this chop chain exists. When I was a file clerk, when you're putting your reports together for your GS7 supervisor, you got to chop it down for their level. And when it gets up to the GS12, it gets chopped down some more. Eventually, it makes it up to the director of the hospital, and it's like three bullet points. Then it goes to VACO, the central office in D.C., where the where the SES starts to get it, and it goes through that entire, you know, 15 levels of, of executive service to get chopped down to get to the secretary of VA. And so now we're talking about the ultimate chop chain, because the, the last stop in any government chain is the president of the United States. So tell us a little bit about this, about what kind of information, the veracity of information that makes it into the PDB. Well, it generally starts, just as you said, at kind of the analyst level, uh, kind of detecting something in what we call the traffic that he he or she is uh, responsible for and responsible for analyzing. So they they will notice maybe a trend or something specifically happening, and they'll write a quick report about it and submit it to the branch chief who looks at it and says, eh, no big deal, or holy smokes, this is terrible. And it goes, if if that's the direction it's going, it goes up through the same chop chain you you just described. But the difference is, uh, uh, kind of at the end of the chop chain at the agency, it goes over to the the CIA. In my day, it went over to the CIA, and the CIA people and, and now the DNI people are responsible for looking at other intelligence from other agencies to see if there's something that we ought to fuse, and we call it fusion, mm-hmm. that we ought to fuse with this particular piece of information out of NSA that, that corroborates it, that substantiates it, or that elaborates on it. And then let's get it up the chop chain and see if we can get it into the PDB. Usually uh, it didn't, but when it did, it was a big deal. I mean a big deal, particularly for the, you know, like you say, the analysts and the people, the branch chiefs and folks like that. So, uh, I mean, if you can imagine, the intelligence agencies, my intelligence agency and others, produce hundreds and hundreds of reports every day for different customers around around the government and we don't do it without a particular requirement to do it but because we have all these requirements we're producing a lot of information so for something to make it into the pdb is a very remarkable thing yeah, so that's very important because you know this this particular uh, PDB that we're talking about, according to anonymous officials who had reported this to the New York Times, um, that PDB was February twenty seventh, and the bulk of the work on that PDB <clears throat> would have come up in the weeks and months leading up to that date, not just what was happening on. Absolutely, starting so, in January, this stuff was known. So. And so back then we had McGuire, we had a relatively competent DNI or at least somebody who had some intelligence uh, experience. Uh, and so 
what you're telling me is that it, what it, wherever this uh, intelligence came from, whichever agency it came from, it would go up, it would, it, there would be a fusion, and other intelligence agencies would add what they knew on top of it. Everybody would sort of vet it. It would finally then be chopped down, make it into the president's daily brief on February 27th, meaning all of this information, all of this intelligence, particularly in this, you know, in this uh issue with the bounties would have been gathered for like you said going back to january and so therefore uh when we have the shakeup at at the dni with the removal of mcguire for briefing i think the gang of eight on something russia related i don't know if it was this or not and then installing rick grinnell who has zero not a lick of intelligence experience to sit atop these agencies we're talking about, and, and not to mention the ouster of the the Pentagon, the Department of Defense Inspector General, like all these inspectors general. We're looking at it. That that's to me sounds like a, a cover up. You know, well, it's it's not hard to get to that conclusion. It really isn't. I mean, this Grinnell guy. I think he asked himself, you know, which butt cheek should I of Trump should I kiss this morning? Or anything. <laughs> I, I who knows where he came from. That's on his calendar, left or right. <laughs> and and of course it, it's a travesty it's an absolute travesty so, and I want, you know the, the last thing i thought this guy trump would drive into the ditch was the intelligence community mm. and it, you know if the american public knew what that means how much resources are devoted to that uh, he thinks you know he operates trump operates on this kind of conspiracy conspiracy basis that everybody in the intelligence community is part of the deep state that's trying to get me out of office. Well, that, 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 that's so crazy. Mm, yeah. That paranoia reminds me of Nixon. Huh. Yeah. Well, it's, it, yeah it's, it's, and then, you know, to say to this new guy coming in, hey, these intelligence agencies are running amok, so get in there and slice them to bits or whatever he's going to do. I, I don't know. So, yeah, that's pretty terrible. And and I I also wanted to ask you, uh, as a you know such a long career professional, the 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 risks of that um, whoever these intelligence officials are that went to the press, the risks that they're taking in leaking this information, and why they seem to be circumventing the usual process of whistleblowing, um, and uh, how that. Risk, knowing that the risk, you know, I, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how heavy that risk is and how it bolsters the veracity of the intelligence we're talking about. Yeah. Well, and of course, as you know, from your personal experience, at a personal level, there's nothing riskier. I mean, it just, it's a, a frightful, fearful thing to say, okay, I've got to, on my own, without any help, stand up and, and you know, bring this forward. So... In, in terms of the intelligence agencies, you know, at risk is our sources, our methods, our our relationships with foreign intelligence activities that are so so critical. Uh, our our the trust among intelligence agencies here in the country. You know, uh, and you know, we used to say, "Well, don't show it to that group because they'll leak it," kind of a thing. You know, so so it, it, it's just. It's unimaginable the, the amount of risk that these heroes are taking to step forward. Yeah, and Haspel put out in her statement, Gina Haspel, current CIA director, had said, look, uh, 
These are leaks. Of course, when we leak this kind of information, then the, the trails dry up and we aren't able to continue looking for that. And to me, you know, she's not necessarily saying, let's go after these leakers. What she's saying is, this is a done intelligence deal and we have what we need. And I don't, I, I mean, you know, I don't know exactly what she was trying to say. I probably am reading between the lines too much, but, you know, they're risking prison time. And I think a lot of this has to do with Trump's attacks on whistleblowers, including folks like Fiona Hill and Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, uh, and, and, his, and his twin brother. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Rick Bright and, and, and anybody and the whistleblower from the Ukraine scandal uh, that they were trying to expose that really, I think, put a chill on people saying, oh, I'll just take the old whistleblower route. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or I'll, I'll, I'll go to the IG and I'll come in through the, you know, the, the whistleblower approach over there. Yeah, but then Atkinson gets fired, the IG. <laughs> exactly. So then the then you put the whole inspector general's office at risk. And then it's just, um, it's it's got an incredible chilling effect. We spoke about it a long time ago, um, about, you know, how, how difficult it's going to be now for whistleblowers to come forward. And, right, right. And um, the side effects, though. You know, you have to worry about, I've got a family to support. I've got a mortgage. I've got, you know, a do I want to face jail time here? It's really a frightening thing. But some people, thank goodness, uh, have the have the wherewithal and the backbone to come forward. Yeah, I'm thinking of Daniel Ellsworth. You know, this is kind of the last time I think we've seen anything this massive with his leak of the Rand Corporation's Pentagon Papers. Um, and, you know, people were like, oh, aren't you afraid of going to prison? And he's like, well, well, if I have to, I have to. Isn't it worth it? Right? Like, <laughs> the whole war. Okay. Um, we don't have to rehash uh, Vietnam <laughs> during these well, proceedings. That's, that's in my time, so I'm interested in that. Yeah. And, you know, my father was an intelligence uh, Air Force officer and spoke Russian and uh, during Vietnam. So, I'm, you know, that would be his field of interest as well. But right, the, right. this whole decades and decades, this world of secrecy um, and anonymous sources you know, when does it become more dangerous to keep the secrets than to leak them out? I feel like, like how many, how many people have to die? How many people does this president have to kill in order for us to start speaking up? And is that sort of why you're talking to me today? It is kind of why I'm talking to you, AG. I think, I think those of us that have knowledge of how, how the government works or the, how the government should work and how, and how the intelligence community should be providing information to senior level policymakers and decision makers. You know, when we see that not working, when we see that the top person is, is you know, for some reason or another intentionally uh, uh, destroying some of this precious resource that we have, you have to ask yourself, okay, what can I do here? What do I need to do to to at least raise my voice about what is going on. Yeah, and that brings me to my final question. What can we do as, like, non-ex-NSA officials? What what can my our listeners do uh, in order to try to amplify the importance of this or to try to help people understand? Because I know that when, uh, for example, when Mueller 
um, went to paper. He wrote two letters to uh, Bill Barr about the mischaracterization of his uh, findings in his investigation into the Russia probe. That is so rare and such a big deal. And I was trying my best to impart the seriousness of going to paper in an instance like that. I just I feel like I have a hard time sometimes, not necessarily with our listeners, but with the world at large imparting to them the importance of, of, of these things. Can you maybe help us with, with what we can do? Well, you know, these do? things, uh, to, the, to the people kind of not involved in the intelligence community or maybe far away from the Capitol Beltway, they're so fleeting, AG. They're, they're so, you know, they're so, there's a little headline in a paper that really uh, in, just gives a snippet of, of what's going on, of, of, of the kernel uh, of the story that they really need to stop and take a minute, think about, take it on board, and, you know, and not just say, oh, that's fake news. I mean, mm. where did fake news come from? I mean, that is, that, that's just incredible. Are you, are you getting your, your news and your information from a creditable, you know, New York Times, CBS, MSNBC. Are, are you getting your information from sources like that and still dismissing this stuff? How can you? Mm-hmm. How can you? And, and, you know, that, it's just amazing to me that people can do that. So just because a guy stands up and says, you know, you're a bad reporter. That's a terrible question. That's fake news. You know, my Lord, mm. I've never seen anything like it. Well, it's that confirmation bias, isn't it? It's that his followers want it to be true, and so he just has to say a few quick words, and it's true. That's true. That's true. I don't, you know, I don't know where this kind of hitchhiking or the taking over of the Republican Party came from, but it, it, these are not. You know, my father was a Republican. He's not the kind of Republicans that I remember, or that I knew, or that I worked with when I was in in the government. Who are these people? Yeah, no, and I, I would imagine most of the people who work at these intelligence agencies tend to be a little more conservative. And and so, you know, I miss the good old days when I could have a nice debate about big government versus small government <laughs> with a Republican. You know, uh, those days are gone, uh, and the Republican Party needs a, needs a little reform. And um, I don't know. I, I, we might get it after this presidency. We got a little bit of it after Nixon, but we seem to have forgotten about it. Well, gee, I got off kind of on a, a personal uh, note there. And if I did, I'm sorry. But if people are interested in finding out more about PDBs, there's, uh, they could go to the CIA's virtual reading room on the, on the Internet. Or they could go to uh, some of the presidential libraries. I think Nixon's library in Loma Linda, California, and uh, Johnson's library in uh, the University of Texas at Austin have quite a collection of these uh, PDBs. Uh, If they want to see more current ones or ones that uh, they can't get their hands on, they can learn about the Freedom of Information Act and try to come at it that way. But, you know... What can we do? We we can be concerned, and uh, we can be uh, anxious about the 8,500 people who are uh, in uniform still in Afghanistan. Mm. What's going on with those? Are, are they safe now? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, it's frightening to think about. Well. I really appreciate you talking uh, to me today, Unc, Jeremy Black, 30-year-plus veteran of the NSA, Inspector General for a, for a while there, Deputy Inspector General. 
Uh, thanks so much for coming and talking to us. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. All right, everybody, we'll be right back after this uh, with, uh, what do we have? Oh, we have another interview uh, with uh, David Scheimer. We're going to talk about his book, Rigged. Stay around. Hey, friends, it's AG. If you've been listening to the show for a while, I'm sure you've heard me talk about my Helix mattress. You've heard Jordan talk about hers. You've heard uh, Mandy talk about hers. You've heard Joelle talk about hers. Uh, we all have them. We all love them. Best mattress, best sleep, best night's sleep ever. Well, Helix has launched a new company called Allform. They're going beyond mattresses to revolutionize furniture for the rest of your home. And I'm so excited about this. They make beautiful, colorful, co- comfortable sofas and chairs delivered directly to you with fast, free shipping. Uh, They make it easy to customize a sofa using premium materials at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. Um, You pick the fabric, which is spill, stain, and scratch resistant, excellent for pod pets. You pick the sofa color, the color of the legs, the finish on the legs, the sofa size, and the shape to make sure it's perfect for you and your house. Uh, I picked out an all-form three-seater sofa and customized it in whiskey-colored leather. I've had cats my whole life. I've never been able to have leather. But now I do, and it has a walnut leg finish, and it fits in my mid-century modern home. It's wonderful. Came in a couple days, put it together myself. I love it. Um, They have armchairs and love seats all the way up to eight-seat sectionals. So there's really something for everyone. And you can start small and add on as your you know, family grows or you move into a bigger house. Uh, usually, if you want to order a sofa, it can take weeks or even months, especially customized sofas. And you would need someone to come assemble it in your home. That costs a bunch of money. But all form takes just three to seven days to arrive by mail. And you can assemble it yourself with no tools. And best of all, you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. And if you don't love it, but you will, they'll, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. No weird hidden restocking fees or anything. They also have a forever warranty. Literally a forever warranty. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash dailybeans. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners. That's allform.com slash dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, I'm joined today by an associate fellow at Yale and the author of the book, Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference, David Scheimer. David, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I was pointed in the direction of your book by uh, Lincoln's Bible and a few other folks that I follow on Twitter as extremely important reading. The New York Times calls your book extraordinary and gripping. On the eve of our national referendum on Trump and Trumpism, this book is nothing less than essential reading. Um, So that's stellar, um, you know, from the New York Times review there. Can you tell us what prompted you to write this book and and what it's about? I would say that this project began just after 2016. I was reporting in Germany for the New York Times And I sort of stumbled into interviewing a former East German intelligence officer who helped execute a covert operation in 1972 that decisively determined the outcome of a vote of succession, an electoral process in West Germany, changed the course of West German history in an operation that no one knew about for decades. And for me, that was a very clarifying moment because I found that after Russia's 2016 operation to interfere in our election, what Putin did was so often treated in the media as unprecedented and, you know, without any any history behind it. And the problem with that is when something's treated as unprecedented, it's so easy to manipulate people's perception of it, to create myths, to create rumors, to twist something to suit your own ends. And what the East German case showed me was that there is, in fact, a history here. So I ended up taking those two examples and then searching for more and found more than I ever imagined of, of, of operations all over the world to interfere in elections covertly before 2016. And what my book then does is it restores history to the subject of what I, of what I define as covert electoral interference. I show how 
the Soviet Union, as well as America through the CIA, interfered in elections all over the world during the Cold War. Um, I then show how Putin's Russia is interfering in elections all over the world uh, in the 21st century, including to our present moment. I then examine 2016 in detail based on interviews with Barack Obama's inner circle, but also with that historical backdrop in place so that I hope people have a, a much more sort of a whole new understanding of what actually happened in 2016 and why Russia was able to achieve what it did. And then I analyze Putin's dynamic with Trump, the Trump administration's policy toward Russia, and offer concluding thoughts on how we as citizens of a democracy can defend our elections, can defend our sovereignty based on the lessons of the past, based on the lessons of this hundred year history that really began all the way back in 1919 when Vladimir Lenin first targeted elections all over the world as the first Soviet leader. Uh. Yeah, so many moving pieces. And we as Americans are just not used to this kind of uh, disinformation attacks and, and active measures. Well, you know, whereas like, let's say a place like Ukraine is probably looking at us going, are you new? Are you new? And, uh, you know, we are. And so that makes it a little difficult uh, for us. And so going back to what you were bringing up about the 2016 Russian election uh, meddling, what about that attack? Because, you know, you cover such a broad history in this book. What about that attack was new, and and what was more of a continuation of, of past practices or active measures, uh, et cetera? What, what sort of how, – how do those two things kind of meet? I would argue that everything Vladimir Putin did in 2016 was an extension of the past uh, that was just able to be scaled up as a result of the Internet. So I, I, breaking down what Russia did, the first thing, the, the overarching objective of Russia's operation – was to sow discord, help one candidate, and hurt another. As I demonstrated in my book, that's something that the KGB did in various U.S. elections, 1960, 68, 76, 84, seeking to sow discord, help the candidate they liked, hurt the candidate they didn't. This is a long-running Russian practice in American politics. Looking at the actual tactics, the first was that Putin, his um, Russian military intelligence systemically targeted our voting systems, penetrated electoral systems across the United States, and had the ability, as I reveal, to alter the voter data and even the vote tallies of U.S. citizens. Well, looking back on history, Joseph Stalin's forces altered the voting tallies and, and voter data of elections across Eastern Europe in the immediate post-war period, and Russian hackers have been targeting election systems all over the, the, the world, including, for example, in, in Ukraine in 2014, when Russian-linked hackers actually did sabotage the systems of the election um, commission, but that virus was detected at the last minute, but they tried. So that's, that's a continuation. The second being the hack and release of private information, which were the Podesta and DNC emails. You know, one of the more clarifying interviews I did was with a former KGB general where I spent about, I mean, about half a day interviewing him about his 40 years in Soviet intelligence. And, and when I pointed to the DNC hack and release and the Podesta hack and release, he said, you know, that's what we've been doing since, since the Cold War, because what that was was finding and releasing the private information of public figures. And, for example, in the 1976 election, the KGB hunted for the private information about Henry Scoop Jackson, then a presidential candidate, in order to find that information, out it, and destroy his political career. They couldn't find damaging information, so they just made it up, made up a forgery, sent it to a bunch of newspapers in the hopes of, again, destroying him with this private purportedly information. The newspapers didn't run it, so it didn't work, but the idea was there, that totalitarian idea of, of nothing is private. Everything is the business of the state. And, and the last piece on social media might seem the most novel, or the propaganda that Russia spread, but it, it really was anything but. 
Because what Russia did was seek to scare voters, seek to sow racial discord, seek to turn some voters out, suppress other voters, target especially black Americans. Again, this is something that the KGB did all over the world. And many of those things are things that the CIA did in elections all over the world. So so when we restore history here, what becomes clear is not that Putin invented these ideas, it's that he turbocharged them because the Internet allowed him to reach more people more precisely and, and, and more quickly and to therefore penetrate an American election at scale using these long running ideas, which had not been something that the KB, KGB had been able to achieve. But the, the ideas underlying what he did were just a continuation of what the agency that brought him up, the KGB, did. And I think when you, we realize that, that's the first step to anticipating what Russia will do next and how to defend against it. Mm, yeah, and it, it reminds me of, I think uh, I read in Russian Roulette um, about the GRU's statement, I think, that came in 2013 or 2014, which was like a mission about how they were going to use the utilize the Internet to do what they've always done. Um, and then, of course, you know, we we learn from Mueller uh, that he did not investigate the vote count and whether it was manipulated in 2016, which I I thought was like, why not? <laughs> but, um, you know, here we are. And and I you know, I guess this kind of boils down to what what Putin wants. What is he after in all this? Because he's not just attacking our elections. He's going after elections globally, like you said. And, he, you know, so if you could just talk for a minute about what you've discovered in, in, in your research and, and in your interviews, you know, what he's after, what his, his end goal. Sure. And I tried to get as, as a holistic a view on that as possible. I mean, I ended up interviewing more than 130 people over this book, including eight former CIA directors, the former KGB general, President Bill Clinton, many former cabinet officials and many officials overseas when I traveled to six different countries examining archives and interviewing officials. And, and what I found is that Russia is, is executing a sustained global campaign not to advance an ideology as the Soviet Union tried with communism. Putin has empowered himself by abandoning ideological constraints. What Vladimir Putin is seeking to do is to tear down and corrupt democracies and end in itself, because what Putin recognizes is that democracies are most likely to die as corrupted versions of themselves, not if, you know, you invade a country or if you topple their regime. It's just turning a democracy into a, into a version of itself that citizens no longer recognize, that reflect Russian attributes, and that are really just chaotic, dysfunctional, and delegitimized political systems because that strategy, by just corrupting our process of succession, our elections, by corrupting elections all over the world, and you're right, I mean, I interviewed the president of Montenegro, who Russian intelligence attempted to assassinate on the eve of his um, election. I interviewed the president or the former president of Colombia, who said his elections were under siege by the Russians. Again, to sow chaos, to sow discord, because what Putin is seeking to do is to A, show his own people that the democratic model is flawed and unenviable, B, make the United States such a sort of chaotic, dysfunctional mess that it's unable to lead abroad and that it is um, unable to function well at home, which shows the world that, you know, the leading democracy of the world can't even, you know, pass legislation, handle a, a, a global pandemic, take measures necessary to, to rejuvenate its economy. Everything that's happening in our country right now aligns with Russia's objectives because our country is not functioning as a well-functioning democracy would. And he wants other democracies also to see the rise of authoritarian-minded, divisive candidates, which are the types of people that Russia supports, so that those countries will move away from internationalism toward nationalism, away from inclusion and toward exclusion, all in the hopes that they'll move away from the West toward Russia 
go back to a, a model of international order in which there aren't functioning international institutions in which Putin believes Russia will have more influence on a relative basis. So what's happening in the world is harder to identify than just a systemic uh, you know, mission to advance an ideology, but it's a mistake to say that Putin doesn't have a vision for the democratic world. He does. And it's just to corrupt, legitimize, and discredit it over time in part by, by undermining their elections, one election at a time. Mm. Yeah. And we see that with Yanukovych and Brexit and Marine Le Pen in France and, and the leader of Hungary. And, and it just, it keeps, it keeps, and, and of course, a lot of the same players work on a lot of the same teams for those, you know, those campaigns that that were happening. And and we had reported extensively on the Obama administration's handling or mishandling, however you want to, you know, clar- uh, classify that, of Russia's operation to interfere in our elections in 2016. What were some of the obstacles, though? I mean, you know, we know about some of them, but I'd like to hear from you and from your, you know, vast interview, the base of people that you've interviewed. What are some of the obstacles that Obama faced in defending against the Russian attack? Sure. And there's a distinction here that's vital to understanding the Obama administration's response and and, and, and not to name drop, so to speak, but I do think it's important. This analysis is based on, I interviewed 26 of his former advisors, including Susan Rice, John Brennan, Jim Clapper, Jay Johnson, all the people who were, who were involved in these decision-making processes at the time. And what I found is that this distinction between efforts to alter votes, actual ballots, which is one form of electoral interference, and efforts to manipulate people, to manipulate minds, which is another form of electoral interference, viewing Russia's attack as, as those two buckets is, is the first step to understanding what President Obama faced. Because in the summer and fall of 2016, he knew that Russian military intelligence had penetrated, again, election systems all over our country. The White House Cybersecurity Coordinator at the time, Michael Daniel, told me that in August he was getting daily reports of Russian targeting of some systems, penetrations of others. It was overwhelming. And what that did was it showed the Obama team that Russia had the capability, again, to alter the votes and voter data of U.S. citizens on election day to cause chaos, to delegitimize the outcome of the election, and to really just go at the heart of what it means to hold an independent election. So President Obama structured his policy response in the summer and fall totally around preventing that sort of attack and ensuring that America had an election that was viewed as, as, as independent and not disrupted on the actual day of the vote by foreign actors. That's why President Obama issued that warning to Putin. It was with reference to this red line, as, as one of Obama's advisors put it to me, of escalating toward vote alterations rather than just manipulating people. That's why you had the, the DHS call about a critical infrastructure designation. That's why you had the congressional statement about, about voting system security. It was all about that first threat to the point that on Election Day itself, as I reveal in my book, the White House and DHS were both running secret crisis teams awaiting a Russian cyber attack against our voting system. So this was a real plausible scenario that our federal government was bracing for. But the the other bucket then, the stolen emails, which the government knew was Russia um, in the summer and fall, but also the social media manipulation of which the government had far less of an understanding at the time. Mm. Those were sort of seen as, as secondary issues, even though in the public perception today, they're viewed as almost Russia's entire attack. They were viewed as things that were bad, but it could be a lot worse because it could escalate toward the manipulation of the vote and therefore that the government could wait to retaliate against Russia for that indirect form of interference of manipulating people so long as Russia didn't escalate toward targeting the actual voting process. And so that Obama felt that if he 
hit Russia, for example, in August, Putin could then respond by escalating his operation toward dis- disrupting the vote. So that calculus was central to the Obama administration's decision making and is also immensely important to understand today in seeking to analyze how vulnerable and in what ways we're vulnerable and seeing that we're vulnerable both to efforts to manipulate our people and also efforts to sabotage our actual infrastructure. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's it's it becomes a it's a whole new picture when you think of it that way uh, and, and what the administration at the time was focusing on. And um, I, I wanted to ask you before I let you go here, I want to discuss what you know, what we can do about this. I'm often asked how to respond. Uh, our listeners ask me how to respond to those who continue to say Russian interference is a hoax. It's made up. Uh, it's fake news, et cetera. You know, repeating the the same uh, lines that we hear coming out of the White House. Um, and, you know, this happens uh, with folks either online when they're having discussions about this or within their families. Family members uh, have said these things and they're always like, how do I respond to this? What do you say to those that call it fake news or treat it as if it's a partisan issue? I would say that it is anything but a partisan issue, and that becomes much clearer when history is restored, because I am understanding of the idea that if you only view this as 2016, you see that it helped Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton, so that builds in a certain partisan feeling and, you know, helped the Republicans and hurt the Democrats, but when you actually look back, it's, it, that, that illusion evaporates, because in 1960 and 1968, Soviet intelligence sought to help, uh, sought to hurt Richard Nixon a Republican. In, in 1976 and 1984, Soviet intelligence sought to undermine Ronald Reagan, a Republican. So in 2016, Russia sought to help a Republican, but but it's not about the political party. It's not that Russia thought, uh, I am pro-Republican. It was, I am pro the person who better serves Russia's interests, not America's. And at some points that has been Democrats, at some points that has been Republicans, but at all points, that should offend and alarm Americans because what Russia wants for our state is not what Americans should want because what Russia wants for us is dysfunction, the inability to pass legislation, the inability to, to function as, as a democracy, and, and basically to you know, cast us into some sort of, uh, again, just dysfunctional, as the KGB general put it to me, hotbed of hate. That is what Russia wants for us. And I map out in my conclusion a strategy to, to push back against what Russia is doing to defend our elections. And I, I hope that folks will, will read it. But, but my point here is that this is a national threat and it requires a national response. And until we get to that point where we as a nation recognize that this is a, this is a threat, we will really struggle to take on this issue because so much of what it means to manipulate an election is to manipulate people. And if the people, therefore, don't recognize that this is a problem, then interfering actors like Russia can can experience much more success in corrupting the information environments of the states they're targeting because those states aren't actually united against the uh, around the notion that it is our democratic right to have elections free of covert foreign interference. Hmm. So between now and November, uh, it sounds like the best thing we can do is to just keep getting the information out there. I think getting the information out there. I also think that it is. It is not true that this is all about the president, because what is clear by now is that President Trump will not launch a policy response against the threat that he actually is. But there are other actors who can make a difference here, like social media companies, which can take various steps that that I outline in the book, like like reporters who can focus more, for example, on the source of hack materials rather than just uh, the contents of them, like citizens who can be more discerning in terms of what they're seeing 
who's trying to influence them and what's actually fact-based and what isn't. And the Congress, of course, which should be passing legislation around election security and around social media uh, regulation. So there are various actors here who matter. I would say first and foremost through November is just the citizenry in terms of being mindful of the propaganda in front of you and trying to make decisions based on facts and not based on either rumors or disinformation or, or just people who are trying to play you. And then I think after November, whether it's a Republican or Democrat who's the next president, I, I, I think that at that point we can launch a much more coherent and a much more uh, effective policy response to this. But I think for now we just have to manage this and we have to get through the next the next few months because right now we do have a commander in chief, unfortunately, who has yet to even recognize publicly in any consistent way that Russia interfered in the 2016 election, which is actually added to the problem rather than to any solution that would that would help us defend our electoral sovereignty moving forward. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Um, well, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Author of the book Rigged, you put so much work into this book. Everybody, you you should really read this book. You can get it wherever books are sold. It's called Rigged by David Scheimer. Thanks for speaking with me today. Yeah, no, of course. Thank you very, very much for having me. All right, everybody, stick around. We'll be right back with a good news block after this. So stay with us. Hello, Daily Beans listeners. It is AG. I know life is pretty stressful. The news comes at us in a giant fire hose of lies. Um, Everyone could use a break from arguing online and worrying and stress and anxiety. But if you're looking for a fun way to give yourself a break while keeping your brain active, uh, you can enjoy this amazing new puzzle game called Best Fiends. Uh, I love Best Fiends because it's a refreshing pause from the daily insanity of politics and pandemics, but it keeps my mind focused and active. That's really important to me. Uh, Best Fiends for me is a great stress reliever. It's very calming. The colors are so calming. The sounds are calming. It's part of my self-care routine. I can focus on the character collection and the challenging puzzles to engage my brain and have fun. You remember fun? I remember fun. Um, I was captivated by the bright, beautiful visual design. It's really, really well done. And, and then I got deeper into the story and the characters, most of which are bugs, and the antagonists, which are slugs. So it's kind of like the government, but, you know, not. Uh, you collect tons of these characters. You need to use them strategically for each level. Uh, I find myself playing in more and more weird places at random times because it doesn't require the internet, so you don't have to worry about Wi-Fi access. I like to take a bubble bath. I don't have really good reception in there, but I don't need the internet to play, and it's just so nice and soothing. Uh, I'm on level, we have like 164 now. We have some listeners that are on level like 1200. That's bananas. You guys are, that's awesome. Um, But, you know, engage your brain with fun puzzles, collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, it has over 100 million downloads. It's a five-star rated mobile puzzle game, and it's a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. All right, everybody, welcome back. It is time for the good news. Well, we're blown on good news. It's on the way. And joining me today for the good news, back with me is Jordan Coburn. Hey, Jordan. Hello. How are you? I am very well. Just chilling, you know? Excellent. Trying to. It's hot. Hot AF. Yes, it is hot. Also, I always forget that I have an air conditioner. That's that's the perfect way to describe the weather in San Diego. You will never even remember that you have an air conditioner. There will be like <laughs> two days maybe of the year where you're like, Jesus, I need help. But other than that, it's pretty chill. Yeah, usually. Usually. Mm-hmm. Seems to be getting warmer over time, but you know. Yeah. That old chestnut. <laughs> Global <laughs> death. Yeah. Um, anyways, I have a, yeah, I, can I kick it off with a little bit of, uh, schadenfreude? Schadenfreude! All 
right, I'm just going to read the lead here for you. Militias flocked to Gettysburg to foil a supposed Antifa flag burning, uh, which was a hoax on social media. For weeks, a mysterious figure on social media talked about plans for Antifa protesters to converge on the historical site of Gettysburg on Independence Day to burn American flags. And that event seemed at times to border on the farcical. Uh, Let's get together and burn flags in protest of thugs and animals in blue. The anonymous person behind a Facebook page called Left Behind USA wrote in mid-June. There would be Antifa face paint, the person wrote. The organizers would be giving away free small flags to children to safely throw into the fire. (laughs) (laughs) As word spread. (laughs) Safely throw into the As word spread, self-proclaimed militias, bikers, skinheads, far-right groups from outside the state issued a call to action, pledging in online videos to post to come to Gettysburg to protect the Civil War monuments and the nation's flag from desecration. So so they want to protect the Confederate flag and the American flag at the same time. Cool, cool. Um, some said they would bring firearms and use force if necessary. And on Saturday afternoon, uh, they flooded in by the hundreds, heavily armed and unaware, it seemed, that the mysterious Internet poster, uh, who was not who the person claimed to be, to be um, it was a hoax. <laughs> no one was there. <laughs> That's so funny. I wonder what else we can get kids on in early that we haven't been making tiny flags for. What a brilliant idea. Right? Come on, kiddos. Right? Join the fun. (laughs) We need to make tiny vegetables, and then everything will be fine. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Yeah, 100% that that was run by a member of the Boogaloo Boys or whatever the fuck. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, That's hilarious all right well cool and and you know what is you know the best part is is that if some boogaloo right-wing fuck face was like i'm gonna put together a flag burning antifa thing to see if he could smoke out all the antifa members to come and burn flags with their children Mm -hmm. and no one showed up (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i was at a protest yesterday in san diego and there it was in el cajon so there were some like, like counter protesters and i was just looking at them thinking like all you bitch about is the 4th of July. Now it's here and you're wasting your shit showing up with your four other stupid friends. What go enjoy your holiday you love so much and that you're terrified is getting taken away from you. You don't love it that much if you're not celebrating it, right? Ah, it's hard to reason totally. with these things. But yes, 100%. Yes. All right, let's uh let's look at uh, some listener good news. You want to you want to kick it off? Sure. Uh, first bit of good news comes from Anonymous, pronoun she, her. She says, a couple of years ago, my husband and I moved back to the city where I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. We knew it was a ruby red district with one of Trump's biggest congressional supporters in the house, but we hoped we could help contribute to turning this area blue slowly but surely. I love that. My neighborhood is one of the oldest in the city with lots of super conservative homeowners who are heavily involved in politics. So I was pretty despondent in 2018 when I found out how many of my neighbors were huge Trump fans supporting Trumpian politicians based on the art signs they displayed prominently. However, this time around, I feel the public sentiment is shifting as more and more of these same houses are now proudly displaying Biden signs. The other day on my run, I ran past house after house that had declared their support for Biden. I know there's still a lot of work to be done, and I'm not taking this for granted. I'm working on getting my non-voting husband, parentheses, I know, in parentheses, <laughs> registered to vote, because we need to vote in numbers too big to manipulate. If you read this on the podcast, please let everyone know. Our hard work is paying off. Keep going. Vote. Get your friends and family to vote. Check your voter registration at vote.org and make several backup plans for voting so you aren't shut out of your right to vote. 
They wouldn't try so hard to silence us if our votes weren't important. Thanks for all you do, Beans team. I love you guys, and I've upped my contribution to help you keep going. Wow. Huh. Nice. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for all of that, for the inspiration and the support and everything. That is... Yeah. It's really nice to see and feel wins. So thank you for sharing that energy. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, I, I do love that whole sort of shifting. You can just tell by the road signs. Somebody had written in last week saying they, dri- they drove through like super ruby red states and didn't see as many Trump signs as they used to. It's nice. It's nice to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. This one. Okay. This one's long. It's from Anonymous. She, her. Hello, I'm a relatively new listener, having just found you when all the primaries were starting up. I was looking for an antidote to my boyfriend's dirtbag left podcast habit, and I found it. Within a couple of shows, I felt like I was listening to friends I've known my whole life. I love feeling like I'm already part of your community, and I wanted to share some good news. It's a two-parter. Uh, I'm a veterinarian in a small practice of only two veterinarians, and since COVID, we have significantly uprooted our schedule to be able to extend our hours while still keeping an incredibly high standard of hygiene and disinfection between each pet. We also split up our tiny 10-women clinic into two teams that weren't allowed to physically interact, therefore working three 12-hour-plus days on and then four days off. Splitting up the team was very hard because while we're all coworkers, we feel like family. On the plus side, these changes have allowed us to grow and take on new clients and increase our profits at the same time when the average vet clinic across the county is or, or the average vet clinic across the country is seeing a decline. I personally don't mind the schedule too much as I'm young and don't have much in the way of family obligations, but it's very hard on some of the staff. It certainly has been a double-edged sword and I'm grateful to be able to still go to work and have close friends to interact with. A 6-foot rule is impossible. Uh, in vet med, but I do still feel fairly ragged with the increased business. Things were dire enough that some of the staff uh, said they would want to quit, but wouldn't because they couldn't leave the rest of us high and dry. It's sad me to hear because as a relatively new grad still in my first job out of school, I consider these people my ride or die ladies, and I couldn't imagine clinic without them. My boss has encouraged an open dialogue about our new schedule and policies this whole time, and only a few weeks ago, she surprised us by closing the whole clinic for a week so we could all take a vacation. No emails, no phones, no nothing. Aww. Which is amazing because us vets aren't able to truly feel off except for Sundays when the clinic is truly closed. And sometimes not even then as we always have messages to respond to and are to a degree on call for certain clients and issues. We're not abandoning our clients. We're referring them to a nearby clinic for the week. We took over for this clinic back in March when they had to shut down for two weeks after COVID exposure. And I'm really grateful for our small community reciprocity. The best part, though, is the response from the clients. I have unanimously been supportive and enthusiastic for, they have unanimously been supportive and enthusiastic for us about a vacation, even ones who are dealing with active issues with their pets. It's been so wonderful to hear them all expressing their gratitude for our care over the last few months. I'm spending the first day of my vacation today, uh, tying up every possible loose end that I can, and I know that everyone will be well taken care of and supported while we're gone, quote unquote. The second part to the good news is that just a couple weeks ago, our ruralish town got internet. I've lived here for three years without internet, and to be honest, it wasn't a big deal and often pleasant. <laughs> if I'd actually had been working from my home the last few months, I'd probably be a different story. But because of COVID and the difficulty students and adults were were having uh, doing, so they got internet in their little town. That's so great. Mm-hmm. All right, that's a two for good news. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Seriously. Anonymous she, her. Yes, thank you. And thank you for your work taking care of our pod pets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gosh, that must be such a brutal and rewarding job. Um, 
Next up from Anonymous, pronoun she, her. She says, hi, Beanie Babies. Uh, Long-time listener here, I confessed earlier in the year that I lost my job and had spent my free time during quarantine as a curator of my dog's Instagram account. Good news to report, I live in Australia, and because of the measures our government put in place, they put in place a payment to all Australian-owned businesses affected in a big way by COVID. It was $1,500 per employee per fortnight and meant I went back part-time about a month ago, and because of our other successes in Australia, sorry to brag, we suck at many other things, including systemic racism, I have now gone back full-time from July 1st. I'm so happy to be back. I know there are still so many people out of work here and around the world, uh, but I'm hoping to help as I am now earning again. Second good news point, sorry this is so long, no worries. My conservative mother, I live with my mom and dad, dad is not conservative and like me, a few months ago, when this all started, uh, when the, this all started, read me an email her right wing friend had sent her as fact. Uh, it was a chain email sprouting falsehoods, spouting falsehoods about the origins of COVID. It said it was from a Nobel Peace Prize winning Japanese scientist. Uh, I may have scoffed and said, no way, that is true. What are the sources? Also, excuse me, it was just a Nobel Prize, not a Nobel Peace Prize. After a heated argument, she googled the scientist in the first news article, Reuters. Was a scientist so upset he had been used by someone to spread lies? She sent the article to her friend. <laughs> Fast forward to two nights ago, my mom comes into my room and tells me she received an email with similar false information, this time from her 80-plus-year-old friend. She said she Googled and checked all sources. I have explained to her the more reliable sources and found the facts and have now sent an educational email to her friend. I was so proud. <laughs> Some people can change and learn if you try and help them through it. That is really cool. Yeah. I don't know many people that do that at all. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, it's very awesome. Thank you. All right. Next up here from uh, from Sarah, pronoun she, her. This starts sad, but I promise it's good news. Okay, so we have to stick with it. Around Memorial Day, my oldest cat was diagnosed with oral cancer. It's basically a death sentence for cats. Because of the location and stage of the cancer, he wasn't a candidate for aggressive treatment, and his prognosis was less than three months. Aww. He passed away at the end of June, a month after his diagnosis, and I was devastated. I'm in my late 20s, so basically he's the only reason I still have a Facebook account. Um, the only reason I still have a Facebook account is to be involved in groups, including a cat-based group of cat-based group for fans of my favorite murder. Shout out to the Meowderinos. <laughs> Love that <laughs> podcast. A lot of people post memorials of their cats in this group. It's very supportive. Vinny was my soulmate cat, and I desperately needed other people who'd lost their special pets to validate my feelings and let me know that I wasn't alone. Well, not only did I get that in a larger dose than I expected, but a stranger was so inspired by the photo I posted that she created a portrait of my cat that is in the mail to me as I write this. I think sometimes our experience of strangers on the internet is extremely negative and it's easy to write people off, but there are so many great people in the world who selflessly want to lend a few kind words or actions. I was going to commission an artist to make a portrait of him anyway, and this piece is more special than anything I could buy for myself because it was a complete act of love from a total stranger. That's so awesome, and I'm yeah. so sorry that you lost your baby. Yeah, Aww. me too, but that is really cool. Thank you. Um, our final piece of good news comes from Ryan, pronouns he, him. He says, Hello, Bean Crew. I'd like to thank you ladies for keeping me up to date on all the news and mayhem we find ourselves in these days. My good news starts out as a downer, but I promise it gets good. Our listeners have a style, I see. Um, mm. Many, many years ago. <laughs> we have a type. Yes. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> Many years ago, my father um, passed away. 
His parents are still alive and in their mid-90s. They have no surviving children, and they moved into an assisted living facility late last year. Quality of life went down for them once COVID hit. My grandmother had been dealing with a lot of anxiety because of the situation. My recently retired mother lives nearby uh, and just convinced them to move in with her and my stepfather. My grandparents were so happy to move in. It just made me so proud of my mom that she would welcome her in-laws with open arms. I just wanted to recognize my mom and stepfather for their big hearts. That's so sweet. I love that so much. High five stepmom or stepfather and mom. Seriously. Yeah. I love that. In-laws too. In-laws, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's not mm-hmm. I mean it's family not by blood but that's Right. That's so big. That's so right. great. It's like a continued support system and that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing, Ryan. And thanks everybody for sharing. Yay! Yes. Good news. Yay. I love the good news. You can send it in to us at dailybeanspod.com uh using the contact uh, menu or you can do it on our pin tweet at dailybeanspod. Um, and you can also send your quarantine confessions in that way. We'll be recording Thursday and it comes out Friday for patrons and Saturday for the public. And like I said, at the top of the show, we have a lot of spots open for free pay, you know, patron memberships. If you, if you can't afford to swing it, there's been a lot of people who have bought one year memberships for, for strangers, uh, uh, because we're, our listeners are just awesome. I'm humbled every day. Any final thoughts today, Jordan, before we get out of here? Not for me. No. All right. Well, everybody. We will see you tomorrow. Uh, We're going to have these SCOTUS decisions to talk about. Uh, I personally don't think the tax ones are going to come out. By the time you've listened to this, you might already know. Follow uh, my Twitter feed at MullerSheWrote. I'll be doing second-by-second updates uh, at 10 Eastern Standard Time. Or is it Eastern Daylight Time? Whatever. 10. 10 10 on the other coast. Uh, Until then, everybody, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. I've been AG. I've been Jordan Coburn. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn, and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios, and our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>